and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened, where we discuss, explore, and connect with fellow empaths, healers, intuitives, and seekers. Welcome empaths. We're so happy that you were able to join us once again. We are super excited to bring a new guest to you all who has just written an incredible book called The Way of the Empath. So before we dive into the book, let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. Elaine Clayton is an artist and author illustrator of several books for children and adults on intuitive intelligence. She's an intuitive reader, a Reiki master, and teacher of intuitive empathic development. She has taught in premier independent schools in Atlanta, Boston, and New York City, and as a visiting author artist in cities around the U.S. Elaine studied at the School of Visual Arts in New York, where she earned a Master of Fine Arts. Her editorial art includes work for the New York Times, the New York Times Book Review, and books by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jane Smiley and Arthur Gregory McGuire. She's on the show with us today to discuss her latest book, The Way of the Empath, How Compassion, Empathy, and Intuition Can Heal Your World. Elaine, welcome to the show. We're happy to have you with us. Thank you so much. I'm really happy and super excited to be here with you. Oh, we are too. You know, it's so often that we find people either in healing professions like nursing or in the world of art who tend to be called to this world of empaths. How do you feel those two go hand in hand? Did you always know you were an empath or did the artwork come first? Well, I try not to be too um, hard in a definition of what is an empath because then it becomes who's an empath and who isn't, you know, and it's sort of uh, doesn't make me feel good to do that. So more so what I would say is we're all somewhere on a kind of grayscale learning about what it is to have true empathy. And some of us are very sensitive and I think artists tend to be um, sometimes uh, people in all kinds of healing arts, although it's not a it's not always the case. But a lot of times people who are super sensitive see things a little bit differently, have a deep longing to help other people feel better. And so they come at life, you know, in a unique way, Um, not necessarily going the most conventional route that doesn't require processing of emotion, let's say, for example. However, you could be someone like, let's say there was a really mean personality surgeon person, let's just say. And you would say that that's the meanest person I know. They have no empathy, but yet that person um, changes people's lives for the better through their work. And that we could even say is a form of empathy because they are skilled in a way that absolutely heals people. So, you know, it's hard to say, but I do think you're right that um, in general, there are people who are kind of uh, more called to art or healing arts um, when they feel innately very sensitive and different from the others. That's true. But you're also correct that it is a scale because everybody has empathy. It's just a matter of recognizing your own and bringing it out and learning how to share it with the world. Yeah, we all have some form of it. And and even if you could say the, the most sick sociopath, that person will tell you they, they know when someone doesn't care about how they feel. 
So you could say that's the beginning of understanding empathy in a way you at least have feelings and you know what it feels like when someone doesn't care about how you feel. So, you know, I guess I would, I have my own personal philosophy about how, how we may, you know, be reincarnated many times in order to learn through hard lessons or whatever. Another thing that to consider is um, if you think about things like reincarnation, I don't try to convince anyone, but let's say, let's say you and I, knew each other in a past life and we got together before we incarnated this time. And let's say that for my hardest lesson, uh, you or someone else in my soul group volunteered to be the person who we might call a narcissist or something in my life during this incarnation so that I could learn my most uh, important lesson for, for my soul to grow. So we don't always know when someone doesn't show empathy, really, if there's a soul who's just volunteering to be in a role that's painful, you know, for themselves and others. So I think there's a lot of mystery around it. But all in all, I would say the book is trying to help people who do feel different from a very early age, and they um, have to cope with the way in which their minds and their hearts are open that no one talks about. Like, for example, when I was in school, I didn't know I was in quote unquote empath. I knew I loved to draw people. I was fascinated by people. I was fascinated by what artists call negative space, the, the visual space between people. I, it took shape and I would be looking at that and staring at that. No one ever talked about it until I was in my first day of art school and I knew I was home then. I didn't know there was a word for it. I also didn't know there was a word for seeing auras. I saw and I still see that beautiful hazy glow of light around people and objects. So I was I was watching the teacher's halo, you know, the glow around their body and their heads, which often was either um, soft white yellow. Sometimes it had a different color. And I thought everyone saw that, but anyway, my mind was absorbing all of that while I'm also supposed to be compelled by whatever the subject the teacher was talking about, which usually it wasn't half as interesting as, as the visual input I was getting. So, you know, I think people who relate to feeling like, you know, an empath or they're, they, they are naturally intuitive, they may tell you that they had other things on their mind the whole time through school that no one talked about. Did you experience that yourself? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I would, I would see their auras when I was staring at them, especially against the, the black chalkboard or yeah, whiteboard. Exactly. It's like the perfect aura exercise. <laughs> it is. It really is. It's this neutral expanse behind them. Yeah. And so what did you do if they, I mean, I bet you were just like me that, you know, you, you would be called out for not paying attention or be feel humiliated maybe sometimes because you didn't know. Yeah. You know. Well, something I would do is I would doodle a lot while they were talking mm -hmm. so that I would just stay focused on what they were saying. Well, see, you're a little bit younger than me, but when I was young, drawing in school was a punishable offense. So oh, if yeah. the teacher was teaching science and you're drawing, are you drawing? You know, you would be approached and the piece of paper would be taken away. And so would your recess because they perceive that to be, you're not paying attention. Um, and so, you know, 
that that being a profound undertaking in itself is another book I wrote that was published by Simon and Schuster addresses around drawing and the innate natural propensity that human beings have to make marks. That book's called Making Marks, Discover the Art of Intuitive Drawing. Because also when, when we draw, we just think of them as nothing, throw them away. And yet half the time, it, it's something really profound. Might've helped you concentrate, might've helped uh, someone feel more relaxed when they were nervous. How about when you're teaching Reiki, how often when you pass on the symbols to students, do they say, I've been doodling this my whole life. I didn't know this was the Choku Rei or the Seiheiki. Do you ever hear that? Well, I think, um, and I don't, I have only, um, I haven't really taught Reiki, but people are asking me to, so I'm about to initiate doing that. I've had so many other things with teaching intuition and intuitive development um, and the artwork and books. But what I would say is, to a degree, all the marks we make are universal. So the spiral, you know, you see that in some of the, you know, um, Reiki symbols. There, are, there isn't a single mark made or, or two or three that you could put together that aren't in some way universal. So I would say that we, another argument for we are innately connected to that which would heal and we don't even know it. The energy, the dynamic, um, you know, gestures that we can make that actually are part of a vast way of moving energy. And so, um, you know, visual imagery does do that. Color does that um, as well as the, the marks that are made. So, yeah, I would not be surprised in the least that people would say, wow, I already know these symbols. I make them. Elaine, throughout your book, you really give these beautiful exercises and tips and techniques for, for empaths to be able to put themselves more in a state of receiving, to embrace more of a positive receptivity. Could you talk about that for a little bit, please? Well, I think that that is one of the things that I care about the most, and everyone will have their own way of going into a receptive mode. I offer uh, a few ways in the book. Um, I think that mainly the first way in order to really be receptive is to be conscious that, that, that you are receivers that, you know, so I was probably 20, 20, somewhere between 22 and 25 when I realized for the first time, Oh, the feelings I have, which feel so crummy aren't even mine. I was having a great day. All of a sudden I feel crummy. And now I realize for the first time, they're not my feelings. Where did I pick these up? And then I could retrace my day and discover where it was that, um, you know, an interaction I had that pinpointed why I felt so, so bad. So I think conscious awareness that we pick up on other people's feelings and feel them as if they were our own is the first helper, you know, as far as receptivity goes, because if you're receiving, but don't really know it, you just feel crummy. You know, you just feel weighed down and heavy. Then once you're conscious that you do this, there are ways in which to, I love creative meditation methods, like the one I was just describing, I call it stream drawing, where you, you don't have to just sit there and kind of go, um, and then start thinking about the grocery list and the errands you have to do and whatever else. Any kind of meditation is great. Some are harder 
to when I'm doing yoga, for example, the gestures you're making with your whole body help you and the concentrating on the breath help, helps us not think and, and it gives the mind a break so you can be receptive and receive. Stream drawing is another way. It's, it's a way of drawing where you, you are in a stream of consciousness flow, not criticizing the self, not blocking the self, but feeling great creative energy on a blank piece of paper and you use the non-dominant hand, the hand you don't normally use, and you close your eyes so you can really enter into that stream of consciousness flow. That's one practice that I really love, and I love doing it with people of all ages. It's really fun. I mean, drawing is a mark making is just natural. We're born doing it. Babies are drawing with their food on the high chair tray. Kids run to a blank wall. They can't wait to mark all over the wall, and then they get in trouble for it. Unless you have a wall that you say, oh, you can do anything on this wall, but not the others, which I think is a great idea. It's a human, just really a human longing to make our mark in the world. Symbolically, making a mark on paper is that. It's acknowledging that we're each individual creators. You know, it's our birthright to create just by being who we are, unique. There's no two other, you know, no other person like you or me or anyone else who ever lived. So when we do something, it's really in a way the first time it was done as it comes through you as an individual, it's kind of miraculous. And so I think people are excited to make marks on paper because of that, but we get conditioned out of it. We start to feel like, oh, it's just a doodle. It doesn't matter. It's not really important. You can't, you can't do that in real life. You have to go make money. When actually drawing on a blank piece of paper, if you can do it in a way that you don't self-criticize, feels so good and really gets you somewhere with your imagination. I think the receptive mode intuitively is in the same realm with the imagination, curiosity, and creativity, spirituality, that which isn't seen, you know, necessarily in 3D, but can be felt or seen and creative in the astral realm, you know, in the ethereal realm. So I, I just think it's something we shouldn't lose, but most adults and some kids, you know, after they reach the age of reason, they'll say, I like drawing, but I'm just not good at it. So I don't do it. And you'll have many adults will say they don't even have a creative practice that they know that they would love to do. In fact, you could ask a lot of people, what do you love? Just what do you love? I don't know. I don't know. And, you know, so that's, that calls us to be receptive to um, our own ideals to, because our own ideals that really is our sole record of who we are. What I love might be a little bit different from what you two love, right? But we may understand each other and add on to each other's library of meaning. But what we love, each of us really does describe and lights us up, you know? That's so true. Yeah. But and isn't it a shame to not know what that is? Oh, 100%. You know, I wanted to ask you, in addition to writing a lot about creative play and empathic drawing, you say in your book that being an empath requires the strength and courage of a lion. I agree with that. I find it to be true. And yet so many people, when they hear the word empath, they think, oh, it's almost like they associate compassion with a form of weakness. So Absolutely. Can you they talk do. about why it's 
a sign of strength and courage to embrace your empathy? Sure. I, I think that, and this would be a really fun talk to have just on that alone. I think that we're, um, we, we're complex and we're animals. So a big part of what it is to be a thriving animal is to just be alive. So we also have instincts to, as, you know, animal instincts that, that have been passed down, you know, for how many, how, how long have people been on the planet? Uh, you can watch animals are naturally in the state of thriving, staying alive. So there's a big part of us that thinks strength only is staying in a defensive mode, being able to uh, attack, being able to dominate. Well, because we have evolved and we are more than just that, that as humans, we understand as we feel oneness or feel connected, interconnected and interdependent, that um, that animal drive to dominate really is not making us happy. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that's how to survive. Actually, we're killing the planet. We kill each other with that too. So on one hand, just seeing that we are animals and we have to work with this uh, animal instinct. So then you take someone who says, well, I don't want to hurt anyone or dominate anyone. I, I love people or I, I feel your pain. They think of that as vulnerable. And, you know, my whole life, people have said something to me about being vulnerable. And I, I recognized it as a strength. You know, even as a kid, you just knew, wait a minute, you, everyone's vulnerable. We're all going to die one day. It's not like there's this master key to never being vulnerable that will, um, you know, solve all your problems. It's more that seeing that vulnerability, being open, being uh, able to be uh, open at the heart for another, to be a little bit selfless, to, to, you know, provide for someone in need over my own needs at times, that actually has a great strength in it. Um, I never recommend someone doing danger to themselves, you know, bringing danger to themselves or putting themselves in a, in a position that could give them harm. Um, yet we see people do it, you know, sometimes there's that thing where you know a firefighter will rush into the to the burning building and they love the role of their, their archetypal role as rescuer and um, sometimes individuals will will do that they'll do something heroic like that because in that moment to help the other person became paramount but if you're talking about in regular everyday life showing vulnerability seems to make people think that someone is weak when it really isn't, it, it does take courage to be empathic because you have to risk showing love when you may not receive it in return. Yeah. And that can feel very, very scary, especially for empaths who have tried that before and have gotten hurt in the past. And yet mm -hmm. I think the risk is always worth it. I do too. And I think we learn from it. And, and I always say, you know, we don't have to judge people. Uh, we can't really successfully know what people's story is and all that. And it doesn't, you know, it takes up too much time and energy to judge people, but we can judge situations. So if a situation, let's say you're empathic for someone, I, you know, every empath has horror stories. We just do. Um, and you learn as you go. And, and the way we learn is usually through um, some difficult things where we got involved. We thought it was up to us to make someone's life better. 
And we left ourselves in a situation that was either anywhere from extremely dangerous to just extremely unpleasant. And we don't have to do that. That isn't even a good idea. You don't have to opt to to be available for situations that are self-destructive. There are ways to, to be empathic and constructive. So I think, you know, back to your other question, a lot of empaths maybe learn, I do want to help people, but I don't want to live a life of misery. So what I'll do is I'll do a job that will help let me help people. And then I can help people all day from my job, but I don't have to put myself in risky scenarios in my regular life. Right. I'll do it in this structured way through this career. Yes, I think. And I think that is the key for us as empaths. Find something you would really love to do that just turns all your lights on and do that, but have healthy uh, choices in relationships. And again, we don't know until we do know. So you're going to love people and they're going to let you down because that we just do that as humans. That's what we do. No one's really going to be responsible for us. No one can rush in and make my life better. I have to do it. People will cooperate and help me, but I have to be the one to do it. We talk about that in the book too, about how the ego, until we learn that the ego does want to be a hero, which is not all bad, the ego can make us think we're responsible or I am the one that should help this person or that person. And maybe it's true, but maybe there's, there's a safe way to do it. Um, that isn't risky. And not always is it my job or your job to be that person. God, you know, I say prayers about it because I feel like there's, there's a higher power, a presence that is with us to help us know kind of when to, when to back off, you know, but again, it takes a lot of life experience, don't you think? I do. And I think a lot of empaths fall into this trap of focusing on helping others as a way to distract from the real work of helping themselves. Yeah, I think it's human to do that. I think that we do that people, it isn't to undermine that they feel it, that they really feel for the other person, you know, especially when we're wounded. A lot of my work deals with the inner child, you know, the stages of development that we have that get activated and that reside in different energy centers of the body. If someone has felt victimized and we all do at some point and it's unresolved, then the first thing you're going to do is always find a scenario where either you're going to be a victim or you're going to try to rescue a perceived victim. And that also is not that healthy. So I think becoming consciously aware of the stuff that has happened to us and the feelings we have about it is the way to overcome a lot of the hardship that life can give us. I think in your book, you talk a lot about self-protection and how to more or less recalibrate your emotional, like how you perceive other people. And do you have any tips for our listeners on how to protect yourself. What I loved was you talked about respect and unconditional love and dangerous liaisons and how to observe and all of those skills. And I think for a lot of people who are empaths, that's such a, it correlates exactly with what you were just talking about, Elaine, but it is also that fine line of how do I protect myself, but also be brave enough to be vulnerable and open my heart to perceive what this person is actually presenting. Having an open heart as a way of 
of life. I mean, if you're intuitive, people can shut you down and you can get angry because let's say the family of origin shut you down. They couldn't handle that kind of vulnerable, you know, emotional accessibility um, because it would make them have to face their own feelings. Let's just take that for a scenario. So someone, let's say they're, they're naturally intuitive, but now they're an adult and they're angry because they, they haven't been able to be comfortable with an open heart. So they're angry at themselves when they get hurt or when they have it. And then you have people who have had lots of life experiences. Um, they can't close their, their heart if they tried. You can't make an intuitive not be intuitive. They're going to pick up on, on emotions and feelings and sense things around them. So then what do you do? It's good to have some playful ways, you know, and not try to get too serious, but just playful ways to protect the self. And a lot of what I do is using uh, creative visualization, you know, where you picture yourself in a dome, uh, a protective dome of light over you, wherever you go. Uh, that means you, you don't say back off enemy because nobody's the enemy. It's more like, I love you. I respect you. I care about you, but I'm protecting myself, but I am sending you benevolent energy. I'm just protecting myself, however, because I need to discern what I will allow in. And when I don't feel good, when something feels toxic, it's, it's my responsibility to myself to, um, to realize that's happening and then to do something about it. So, you know, that's one way where you, use creative visualization. And I would say it's just as real as anything else. It's just, you know, an ethereal thing, but most good ideas come from that place anyway. Another thing I mentioned, I think I mentioned it in this, um, I like to play with Native American animal wisdom, you know, like the animal that you, that you encounter as bringing its medicine to you. But let's say I encounter a dog. I mean, it's just you know, you might see a hundred dogs, depending, you know, you could live next to a kennel, but that would be something. But let's say I don't see other people's dogs that often. And I see a dog and then I, oh, I see a dog. It's a black dog or a white dog or whatever. And if I'm paying attention, I'm in a receptive mode. I'll say, what, what does dog symbolize for me personally? And I might have some memories about dogs. Uh, some might scare me. Some might protect me. The um, other meanings they may carry that are more universal might be loyalty. Who is loyal to me? What is loyalty even to me? Who deserves my loyalty? You know, so I might look at the attributes of dog like uh, protection, innocence, because they, they stay kind of like a two-year-old, you know, uh, although they think of themselves and they are really, their job is to protect us. So you can look at those themes, loyalty, protection, innocence, things like that, along with your own personal meanings, and then apply it to some situations that may be weighing on you. Then you're in a meditation and you've protected yourself simply by noticing the animal that you saw. It's like being tuned into signs and symbols around us as not just things that we hold, you know, that we see and encounter that don't have any meaning pretty much everything we encounter does have some meaning. It's all there to serve us. Well, and that's kind of goes in alignment with my next question for you, which was on signs and synchronicities. You talk about that a lot in your book and how empaths should really be on the lookout and ask for signs. Can you tell some stories in your own life where you've asked for a sign and actually received it? 
Sure. I Sometimes they're just simple ones. Sometimes it can be a lot more profound and unbelievable. It's almost like there is a sort of amorphous field of knowledge and you tap into it, you ask a question, and then you receive an answer, you know, or you might ask a question, oh, I wonder, blah, blah, blah. What was it yesterday? There was something yesterday. And I thought, oh, I said out loud, oh, God, you are listening to me. Oh, I'm trying to remember what it was. There was something I was really interested in and wanted to know the answer to. And then I went on Facebook and there it was. Someone had posted something. Yeah, it was one of those moments where, oh, I got the answer right away, you know. I did a meditation years ago and I was really seeking to find my guardian angel's name. And I kept asking and I kept, and all these weird synchronistic things came together where I believed her name was Malaya, but you know, we tend to doubt that. Right. And I'm like, Oh, there's no way she doesn't, an angel's going to have time to tell me her name. So I come home from this experience. It's too long to go into here. And I've told it before, but where all these things kind of came together and it was like, Oh, I think her name really is Malaya. And I come home and no one's home, which, you know, at the time I had three young kids and that was weird to not have anyone at home. They were all at the park with, with their dad. And I thought, well, I'm just going to kick my feet up and watch TV. And so I turned the TV on and it always would turn on to at that time, Time Warner's TV guide station, you know, where it just scrolls through what's on. But this time it turned on to AMC or TMC, one of those channels that shows old movies. And it was Jimmy Stewart starring in Malaya. Oh, there you go. And I thought, okay, you are talking to me. This is who you are. So yeah, those encounters are so affirming and validating and comforting. I just remembered what it was yesterday. So I thought, oh, I think I'll join the local artists guild, you know, but I don't know. I'm not really sure. Everything sometimes seems like, oh, another thing to have to go look up how to do it and whatever. And that was the thing I saw. The the minute I went on Facebook, I saw a new post by someone I had communicated with a few times. So we were already friendly and he's the new president of the artists guild. So I was able to just message him and say, how easy is it to join? What do I do? You see how, you know, and and it doesn't mean I have, it's not a sign like, oh, God wants me to join the Artist Guild. I asked uh, to find out more information. So it it just points the way. So sometimes our, our examples so far have been either related to TV or social media, but that those things are portals for a lot of knowledge and for accessing answers, you know, nature can provide it. Uh, Other people can. Uh, I just think we're really very interconnected. And the answers that we seek are not hard to find. They're right there. Sometimes we have to wait before we get an answer. But when we get one, it's so great. Now, something else you write about is empaths and time and schedules. And you recommend that empaths should try to find a career that gives them some flexibility with time. Can you say some more about that? Well, you know, I think it'd be fair to say we could go around the room and see what each individual person who relates to being an empath would say about it. And there are certainly phases in our lives where we don't have a choice about scheduling and it's a great skill to learn and it can be empathic toward other people to be on a schedule. For example, if I'm taking care of children, They have to eat, not when I feel like it, but when they need to eat, right? So I have to suspend a lot of my own 
inclinations to show true and genuine empathy for them and their need. So I may be on a strict schedule because it serves, right? So it's not that scheduling is bad, but empaths usually in that thing of going with the flow can feel really restricted, uncomfortable, and not really at home, not really fitting in when they have to be precise and in a role for very long or forever, because it seems like forever when you're in, in that kind of thing, if you're empathic and you want to honor your feelings, you want to honor your emotions. I'm not talking about being self-involved where you can't honor others' needs. I'm just saying that sometimes a really hard punch the clock life hurts empaths inside because they may feel, you know, a kind of flow is cut off where they can't even check in to process the feelings that they're dealing with. Does that make sense? It really does. I have a hard time following time. Like mm-hmm. I'll, I'll think, oh, I have 30 minutes to get ready before I have to leave. Mm-hmm. And then I look at the clock and it feels to me like two minutes has passed and 15 minutes has passed. And I'm not like sitting there drooling, gazing out the window. I'm doing stuff, but time just seems to, I don't know, move different for me than it does most people. So I've had to really acclimate myself and uh, like the clocks in my home are set forward so that I'm not running late. I have had to make little uh, adjustments like that. Do you have that, Denise, where you feel weird with time and the way it flows? I do. And I think a lot of people are, and that kind of leads into what I wanted to ask Elaine about next. So it's perfect. Everything is is upside down right now. And we've, we've talked about that. But the time factor, sometimes it's how did another week go by? How are we already going into May? How is this? And then other times it's like slogging through mud. Time is illusory. And, you know, think about our best, our best portal to the spirit realm is when we're sleeping because we're completely given over for the body to repair. And so some of, some of the dreams we have are just psychological really and physical, you know, but we're astral traveling. We're having things happen that we don't ever want to have happen again, or that we do want to have happen. So we're learning a lot in the astral realm while we're sleeping, but over there, in that realm, time isn't, isn't synchronized or, or no, it's not in increments linearly, like the way we experience it here. And I feel like in that way, time is a gift because we, we obviously are here learning in a construct and concept of past, present, future. We learn so much from the past. And when we don't, you know, it keeps smacking us, right? But we, we, we get initiated through certain events that, that guide us and form us and shape us. And then we um, usually have a hard time focusing on this now moment, very hard. We're either remembering stuff about the past that we don't even want to remember, or we're holding on to memories of pain or what someone did to us that was wrong. How many times in a day does that float in? Lots for most of us. Or we're anxious about the future. I feel now that the, the, the veil is thinning, you know, our shifting life right now through COVID and the structures being loosened and kind of changing. And it's kind of a, at a crisis point sometimes, you know, it's kind of revolutionary stuff going on. We are not in time in the normal way. I don't think some people feel, and, and I don't know what you all think. I feel time is way more accelerated. My perception of it 
goes way faster in general today. I do too. And I used to think it was just a product of growing up. You know, I thought, well, Mm -hmm. maybe we're just adults and we're getting older and this is what happens. But I hear it from my children. They're like, what? Christmas is three weeks away. How did that happen? Oh my gosh, the school year is ending in a month. How did that happen? And when you hear it from kids who, I don't know, when I was younger, time just, it seemed to be forever before summer break and Christmas break. And yet I'm hearing from all these very young people that time is flying for them too. Yeah, I think it's, I really do think there's something about it. We have sped up how fast we can know things in the blink of an eye. We can communicate with anyone in, in the whole world. And in the blink of an eye, I can find an answer on Google that I didn't know. But you would think that would slow things down in a way because, um, you know, you start thinking about, well, I can get the answers faster, but then I can apply them once I know them. I, I didn't, I, it, you know, I don't have to go to the library to do this and that and this and that and things that take forever. I, I don't know. I mean, I just think it's really interesting that our concept of time collectively may be shifting and changing and it may be because of technology partly and course that's also spiritual too but it may be that we're just in this spiritual um time of life here where we're able to perceive it and we're not really agreeing to go along with the status quo anymore either we're not subjected to it when you're subjected to the slog you know to the system it can make us feel like time is really dragging and, and slow but I don't know. I think I bet if we took a survey, most people would feel like it's faster now than it was. Yeah, I think so. Well, speaking of spiritual growth and development, you also have two other books on fairies and angels that people can also check out. One is called The Little Book of Fairies, correct? And the other one is A, a Little Bit About Angels. Yeah, that's a series that was done by Sterling and they're, they're now Union Square Press. They go by that name now little bit of series and mine are a little bit of angels and a little bit of fairies. So the fairies one is about nature spirits and a little, just a little bit of the way in which fairies have been presented through throughout time. And then the angel book is, is um, a lot of different accounts of angels, a little bit about the history of where they were, uh, you know, the first concept of angels in our world, or, you know, they probably were perceived in many places, but Again, that book is for a little bit of just putting your toe in the water. And then the other book that that is on spiritual themes and intuitive themes is the one I mentioned earlier, um, Making Marks, Discover the Art of Intuitive Drawing. And that's with Simon and Schuster. So um, I've had a great time trying to use my time and, you know, creative, I don't know, desire to... Um, put put some spiritual work out there, both in the form of books and art. It just means so much to be able to read about angels. I There was a period of time where I, I wanted every book on angels. I want to hear all the accounts. The other thing I love to do, and I don't know if you all do this, um, my dad introduced me to Raymond Moody's first book on near-death experiences when I was about 15. He handed me the first case that Raymond Moody dealt with, and it was uh, a book by Dr. George Ritchie entailing his return from tomorrow. Yes. And I loved it. And ever since then, I I wrote Dr. Ritchie, you know, I wrote him letters and he would write me back and 
I became friends with Dr. Moody and his wife. And, you know, so um, I could read near-death experiences all day or listen to them on YouTube. I'm fascinated by anything transcendental, like transformational experiences where people say, wow, I, I, I saw my angel, you know, or like what you just said about getting the name of your angel. You got some real fast, uh, you know, answers there. Um, so some of those things that are out there that weren't there for us as much when we were younger, it's just great to have, you know, people provide that for us. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Again, your book is called The Way of the Empath. Tell people how they can find it and you online. Well, thank you so much for having me. I I really enjoy the conversation. I could talk for hours with you. So you can go to, well, you can get The Way of the Empath at any bookstore and you might have a favorite local bookstore that you want to support and you could go to, to them and have them order it. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all of those places. And you can find me for intuitive readings, um, intuition development, and and other books and art and all that, teaching at elaineclayton.com. And I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. I've tried Twitter, but I'm not that great at Twitter. So you can find me there too. But the visual medium is more kind of goes with me. Well, and there's only so much we can do, you know, like people ask me, are you on Twitter? Are you on TikTok? Are you like all I can manage are two social media forums right now. <laughs> and two is a lot. Two is enough. You know, it's okay. I mean, you know, I, I'm with you on that. I, I I also think if you're being spiritual and you're, you're receiving spiritually and then you're in a, a healing arts life, you have a lot going on already, you know, yes. when you have children to care for, or, or, you know, I have my dad that I need to sort of help with here too. And so it's kind of, um, you know, not that easy to be a big major marketer, you know, and I don't even know if I'm that interested in that part as much. I, I want the, I, your platform, you know, helps people discover how to be empowered and how to be spiritually nurtured. So I'm thanking God for it and that you spend time doing this, but do you need to do five other things? Maybe, maybe not, you know, not all the time anyway, right? Exactly. Exactly. Good example of setting empathic boundaries. <laughs> true. True. Well, I would put- you know, the magazines make us think we have to have it all now and you can have almost anything, just not all at once. You know, I had a teacher give me that advice. I was taking an internship at a law firm when I was in high school. And she said, I want you young ladies to know that women can have it all, but just not all at once. Yeah. Amen to that. We needed that people to tell us that because, you know, women are running around, you know, I, or maybe not so much anymore, but we did at least in the past feel like we had to make it all happen and all at once and be, you know, successful in a materialistic way while doing, and and you weren't even worth anything unless you did that. And that's terrible. That's terrible to give that message to people too. So it really is. We just, we can have it all just one at a time. Yeah. Take it easy. Right. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. And listeners, it's called The Way of the Empath. And you've been listening to Elaine Clayton. And we'll put all the information for that in the show notes and on our social media pages. In the meantime, we hope that you always remember to show up, do great work, 
and share your light. Take care.